wouldn't want to tell just once. But we see in this story so vividly that even though she's confused, even though she's bereft, it's at the moment when she hears her name spoken in that familiar voice that her faith starts to reignite. And she starts to move from fear and bereavement through confusion and then through to new hope, through to new hope, which was the need, the deepest need of her heart so that she too could believe again and that her deepest questions, her deepest questions could find resolution and that the emptiness that she had felt in the aftermath of losing Jesus could be filled again, could be filled again. Third scene is the disciples cowering, cowering in the upper room, verses 19 through 23. Now it's described again so vividly as they're in this locked room out of fear of the Jews. And we can add to that reliably their deep sense of shame, their sense of remorse. So they're locked in by the padlock on the door, but they're also locked in by things they didn't want to think about. For all we know, maybe their initial response to seeing Jesus was shame rather than joy. Maybe they were locked in in more than one way at the same time. Because after all, in Jesus' hour of trial, they mostly left him on his own. I'm sure there are many reasons why Jesus says three times, peace be with you. But one writer points out what I think is the most important reason. Prior to his death, Jesus told his disciples they would all be scattered and they would leave him alone. And then when he was arrested, he told the soldiers to let his disciples go. And then he was taken alone to the high priest and eventually to Pilate to be condemned to death. The disciples, and especially Peter, who had denied him three times, would have felt deeply ashamed that they had abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. And now to our story, when Jesus appeared to them behind locked doors, his greeting of peace be with you showed, showed he was not holding their failures against them. Rather, he was offering a restored relationship, a restored relationship. And so their capacity to believe is again in the process of being rebuilt. Their encounter with their risen Lord, the very last person they expected to join them in their place of dread, came and brought them out of their failure to a new commission to be sent and empowered by him as their savior. Fourth and last scene. Thomas, Thomas and his doubts. I guess we could call them misgivings, apprehensions, uncertainties. 
but Thomas will always be doubting, doubting Thomas. If they were living in the 23rd century, his fellow disciples would probably give him a t-shirt with the word doubtful on it. Or maybe he would wear a t-shirt that said prove it (laughs) or convince me. Just to set the record straight, we know a little bit more about Thomas than what chapter 20 tells us. Earlier in the gospel, back in chapter 11, around the time of all that controversy surrounding Lazarus, and Jesus wants to go back to Judea, which is sure to mean trouble. It's Thomas. Thomas is the one who steps up and says, let us also go that we may die with him. Didn't seem very doubtful there. Maybe Thomas deserves better than to be typecast as the patron saint of doubt. After all, was he really so different from the other disciples? Earlier in the chapter, Jesus had showed them, too, his wounds and his side. And let's never overlook the end result of the questions that Thomas had. The most powerful confession of belief in the entire fourth gospel. The most powerful confession of belief in the entire fourth gospel. At the beginning of the gospel, John the Baptist had testified that Jesus is the Son of God. A little bit later, Nathanael had declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And the Samaritans had later said, we know this man is really the Savior of the world. The man born blind confessed, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing, and later worshipped him as the Son of Man. Lazarus' sister Martha said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world, and so on. And yet with all those confessions, Thomas's confession, Thomas's confession is not only the last one, it is the climactic confession of the fourth gospel, because he confessed Jesus not only as his Lord, but as his God. And it was a strongly personal confession. In the words of the hymn, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow, mingle down. Thomas's confession, the strongest confession in the entire gospel, my Lord and my God. So Jesus met Thomas, Jesus met Mary, Jesus met all the disciples, at their point of need. In the midst of belief and faith that had been shattered, he met them at their point of need. In the midst of their shock and their grief and their bereavement and their skepticism, their remorse or their regret, he met them so that they might believe. So that they might believe. Now how does this vivid and powerful chapter find us. Two points, one from Jesus and one from the Apostle John. First of all, from the words of Jesus himself, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who have not seen and yet have believed. Brothers and sisters, this is us, this is us. Naturally, the eyewitnesses, those who saw the tomb, those who 
saw the angels and the, and the mistaken gardener in the, in the graveyard, those who saw the grave closed, those who saw the scars of crucifixion, those were all long gone. When we believe, we believe on the basis of the faithful, believable word of Scripture and its testimony to Christ Jesus. We believe on the basis of the faithful, believable witness of those who brought the message to us, whoever they were, wherever they were. We believe on the basis of the faithful, believable testimony of God's faithful people across the world and across time. And here we have it on the authority of Jesus himself, that to believe in this way is a blessing, not a substitute or a second best. Not a substitute or a second best. Second word comes from John the Apostle. In the first part of the Gospel, John records seven signs performed by Jesus. And, what, and yet what he records is only a selection, a summary from a far greater number of signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples. And so John needed to be an editor as well as a disciple and an evangelist. There were just too many signs and events to include in one book. But in summing the whole account, the whole account up, here's what he says. But these are written, the entire comprehensive span of the gospel, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the gift and the message of the living word for us. Life in his name, eternal life, abundant life, and life that's in step with his promises and purposes for all time. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. So may this be the legacy of our time as a church in the Gospel of John and of our Easter celebrations from this year. To the glory of God and for our thriving as his called and sent people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.